Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the revolting edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I'm joined by my regular and awesome pants guests. There's Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. And there's Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. You know, Felix, at some point I'm going to go back through all of our archive and tally up the number of times you have said awesome pants in the course of this show. You it might that. be my number of the week at some point. You do that. Okay. You can, you can come up with an awesome pants to episode ratio. Uh, revolting. What am I talking about? We are talking about the boom in subprime auto loans, which sounds a bit skeevy, and Kathy's going to examine whether in, indeed it is skeevy. I suspect maybe it's not as skeevy as it looks. We'll talk about the political party of CEOs. That's an interesting phrase that came from Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, who is part of this big push that corporate America is making against the, quote, religious freedom laws of Arkansas and Indiana, which seem to be aimed at the gays. And then, finally, we will talk about the stand being taken by The Guardian, the British newspaper, which is pretty big over here, too, which just became a very big backer of climate change divestment. All that is to come. But first, Cathy O'Neill. Yes, Tell us what is happening when I buy my car and I don't have much money. Well, okay. So here's the thing. Are you subprime or not? Do you know? I actually do know whether or not I'm subprime, and probably the answer would not surprise you. I'm guessing that you're not subprime. Subprime, (laughs) by definition, is for people with credit scores, FICO scores, below 640. I'm also guessing that most people who are subprime 
don't know exactly what their FICO score is, but have a guess that they're subprime. So it turns out all the tricks that we learned about after the fact that were happening in the mortgage market, in the subprime mortgage market, are now happening in the subprime car market. Every single trick you can think of. Name what trick. Going after old penniless ladies and trying to sell them an expensive car with a loan. Done. <laughs> L- uh, lying on your application. About your income. Done. Securitizing and then tranching and then selling to investors. Done. All those things. You're getting rating agencies to give it AAA ratings? Absolutely done. Okay. Absolutely All right. Done. So we have a subprime market again. Yes, we do. I feel like it's been many, many years since we had a subprime market. Finally, we have another subprime market. Phew. Let's Fe- celebrate, right? Felix is getting the old subprime feeling back. It's and not like, only do we have a second market, time lucky, right? we have a bubble, too. What's bubble at least that's what market. we think. Um, Who's we? Great question. So there's been a lot of great reporting on this in the last 12 months by Jessica Silver-Greenberg and Michael Corkery and a bunch of other people at Reuters. Those guys were from Times. So there's lots of indicators that this is actually a bubble. So first of all, it's growing and growing and growing. It's $20 billion last year. It grows at like 16% a year since 2009. It's just... That's a, one sign of a bubble, but it's not enough, right? Markets sometimes just get bigger. The repo rates for these cars is doubling. At least it doubled from 2012 to 2013. That's, that's a bit like the default rate on homes, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And it's sort of the speed at which people get the car and then default on it immediately afterwards, that's getting Yeah, I remember well. that from the subprime yeah. bubble, too. So, you know, I've been reading about this, and one of the interesting questions that came to me is like, why do people think this time will be different? Like, why go through this craziness again of, of trying to sell expensive loans to poor people in order to get higher returns, theoretically? And what, what I saw that some of the theory about all this was cars would be different because people were less likely to default on their car and let their car be repossessed than they were to default on their mortgage. Because, because you need a car, you right? You need a car. I actually have a quote written down here yeah. that is exactly this point. Yeah. Um, and this is the car dealers. They, their quote is, you can sleep in your car but you can't drive your house to work. Which is... That's, that makes sense to me. It, but apparently it's turning out to be wrong. It's, that, it's, it's a mean thing to say, but it, it points to a truth, which is that people are desperate to keep their cars. Once they, they don't have their cars, they can't get to work. There is, And yet they were still defaulting. Wait, so I'm going to be the voice of reason here. And oh, by please. reason, I mean the rapacious capital markets. For one thing, the default rates are completely built into the interest rates on the loans. You expect people to default. Even if the default rates rise, the securitizations are robust to that. During the original subprime bubble that we all remember so fondly from the mid-2000s, there was this idea that your mortgage was the last thing you would default on. You would default on your credit card loans, you would default on your student loans. Everyone knows that student loans are the first thing you default on. The question is, what's the last thing that you default on? What's the payment you really keep on making? And right now, people have quasi-empirical reason to believe that, in fact, it is the car loan. That people, since the subprime crisis, are actually more comfortable than they used to be defaulting on their mortgage. And they don't want to default on their cars because they do know that if they default on their cars, that car is going away. So I have a couple, I have a question and then a point to make. The question is, like, don't people ever double up on cars? Like, can't they just say, I'll share a car with three other people? I don't understand exactly why this logic works. It does work, but I'm missing it because um, I... Because you live in a big city. You don't live in an excerpt somewhere. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's because people have to drive their car to work. That's I... exactly why it is. Yes. Oh, it is. Okay. Then the second point I want to make is one 
difference, one really big difference, actually, between the mortgage um, situation and the car situation for subprime borrowers is that they have this new technology that forces them in a really gross way to pay their monthly loan parts on time. Namely, they have this GPS system. Do you guys know about this? Mm -hmm. Where the car dealership that wants you to pay up your monthly fee can turn off your car if you're late. And they do. So they have these reports of people having their car turned off three hours after their payment is due. Three hours. Yeah. Is there any kind of protection that stops them from doing that while somebody is on the road? There has to be some kind of thing built in that someone just can't zap your car when you're in the middle of the freeway. So there's conflicting evidence about this. Some people have claimed that this is actually what happened to them. But most dealerships say they don't actually turn off your car. They just prevent you from starting your car. So it's not really a danger. Although people get stranded, they're picking up their kids at daycare and they they park, get their kids, come back, and they can't start their car. Okay, so Kathy, yeah. I mean, I can see how there's lots of evil things here, which you'd expect from a rapacious capitalist society. Yeah. But ultimately, are we not getting cars to people who need them? That, you know, for those Americans who don't live in big cities with public transport, which is basically everyone who doesn't live in New York, cars are a necessity. And are you saying that people who are subprime, who have FICO scores less than 640, should just be sort of locked out of society and incapable of buying cars? Isn't it better that they have onerous loans and a car than no onerous loans and no car? I'm totally going to go with, like, let's lock them out of society. No, obviously not. I mean, uh, a lot of what you see in the reporting is that there's actually really unfair practices going on at these dealerships because they know that their borrowers are so desperate. So there's a large amount that we could improve simply by making sure dealers are more reasonable. But let's be clear about this. Do you want more subprime people to be able to buy cars or do you want fewer subprime people to be able to buy cars? I don't know if it's quite that much of a binary because there's also some evidence that they're essentially selling more car. You know, it's that they're getting these people to buy a more expensive car rather than like the absolute cheapest used vehicle they can find. They're adding ridiculous things onto the loan, for example, life insurance um, and various things that they call markups. Yeah. It's not under scrutiny of this, of this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Somehow the lobbyists forced that out of Dodd-Frank. Yeah, because auto, auto dealers are one of the most powerful forces politically in the country because they're basically the rich small business owner in every single district. They have these markups that they add on. It's basically points on the loan, more or less. Some people think we should ban these, but it's just a non-starter because auto dealers have so much clout. You can't get that through a state legislature. You certainly can't get it through federal. So is, let me try to answer the question. Though, okay. Felix. And it's actually going to come back later in the episode when we talk about divestment from fossil fuels. I mean, the truth of the matter is there is a structural problem in this country. You're right when you said that most people are dependent on their car. And that means they're depending on gasoline. It's There's a structural problem that we should probably address as a country. And these people who are getting ridiculously bad loans that are not under scrutiny, and then they're going bankrupt and saddled with a lot of debt, they're collateral damage in this problem. And I, I do think that we can limit that damage. But I, do, I agree with you that it's actually kind of an unsustainable issue. Let me ask you if there's an arbitrage here. Is there a market solution? It seems to me that a huge part of the problem here is the avarice of the car dealers. Yes. And that what they are doing is they are looking at the cars is how they just begin to make money and the car loans is where they really make the money and they load up these car loans with a bunch of extra bells and whistles which are not needed and very harmful for the borrower but which make the dealer lots and lots of money. So my question is, in a situation like that, 
Shouldn't people enter the market, new auto lenders, enter the market and say, do you want to buy a car? Don't get the loan from the dealer. The dealer is the last person you should get the loan from. Get the loan from me instead. I'll give you a much fairer rate and I'll make your payments much lower. Why isn't that happening? Right. There should be a market maker here. Like there should be someone who's like, I am, I'm willing to give you a loan which is predatory, but not as predatory. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that will happen, actually, when people stop coupling in their mind the idea of buying a car and getting a loan from the same person. That's a sort of cultural shift that we should see, hopefully. I, it's been a while since I've reported on the auto industry, so my, I'm a little rusty on this. But just intuitively, I find that a little hard to believe because the channel through which people are buying the car is the dealer, and the dealer doesn't have much incentive to really make sure that low-income, not necessarily super-savvy customers know about their financing options. Right. They're more likely to direct them to Santander or to GM's financing arm. I'm just blanking on the name right now. I'm just now, saying that there could be a startup that says, before you go to the car dealer, yeah. come yeah. to us. Can't, can't you turn up to the car dealer with you know your kind of pre-approval letter like you have for a mortgage and say, you know, I have a lender here who will lend me $15,000 to buy a car. Right. Find me a car for $15,000. And by the way, I'm sure credit unions do this. I mean, I'm sure there are examples of this. So it, it is to some extent who has the sort of the power of advertising for this kind of thing and who can get the message out to the... So people, for those of you slate money listeners who are subprime for whatever reason, number one, it's okay. Our advertisers still love you. But number two, go out and talk to your local credit union before you buy a car because you'll get a much cleaner and less predatory deal than if you get your car loan from That's the dealer. That's good advice. Okay. We will move on in a moment, but first, the amazing Stan Alcorn is going to drop in a plug for some other Panoply show. Hey, y'all. It's about time for our national conversation about conversations about race, a new bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, won't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre, post, yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call the show About Race. I'll be in the studio from Los Angeles, and I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black, with my lovely co-host Raquel Cepeda, author of Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina, and Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. Yes, it's an integrated podcast about race. A black man, a white man, and a Latina woman walk into a podcast and talk about it at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Jordan. Yes. I have been utterly confused by this whole Indiana thing. Uh, I Every time I read something about it, it becomes more confusing. I don't understand whether they changed the law or not or whether it was a big deal or not. The only thing I know is that there was a corporate uproar. Can you explain why here and why now? Yes, I can explain. Thank you, Jordan. So last week, uh, Indiana passed its own version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. There are lots of these laws or versions of these laws around the country. So why did everyone suddenly get up in arms about Indiana's? Well, Indiana's is sort of a post-gay marriage version of this law. The idea is that if you are a baker, for instance, and a gay couple says, I would like you to make a cake for my wedding, and you say, I'm a devout Christian, and I do not want to take part in a gay wedding in any way, you refuse to serve them. It says if you are then sued under essentially a local uh, civil rights ordinance, you can then use your religious beliefs as a defense 
in that lawsuit. Um, that, that's really the long and the short of it. And why this gets confusing is that there are technically no laws in, nationally or in most states protecting gay people from discrimination. In most places, you can just fire a gay employee because they are gay. There's nothing saying you can't do that. However, in some cities and some parts of Indiana, there are protections. And so this law was essentially meant to deal with that. And there was a lot of obfuscating by the governor, Mike Pence, who signed it, who was claiming this law was not about discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. But pretty clearly, that was the intent, was to allow conservative Christians to not serve gay customers. Then the blowback came. Essentially, you had this wave of CEOs uh, just outraged saying that, you know, we are not going to do business in Indiana, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like Tim Cook got it really rolling from Apple. He wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post talking about Indiana and other similar laws around the country. But then you had just kind of a cascade of other names. Um, For instance, Salesforce said it was canceling all programs that required travel to Indiana. Angie's List said it was going to halt an expansion in uh, Indianapolis. NASCAR came out with a statement. The NCAA came out with a statement. Eli Lilly came out with a statement. It was just one after another after another. And all of a sudden, you had the governor of Indiana kind of on the rope saying, trying to defend himself. Um, and, and it wasn't and really working. It was Walmart as well, right? That was the thing which everyone kind of, the jaws hit the floor. Down when, south. And when been, you have yeah. Walmart and NASCAR coming out yeah. against you, you know that you don't have yeah. like Red America and, anymore. The Walmart thing, just to clarify, at the same time as this happening in Indiana, Arkansas was also in the process of passing a similar law. It went through the legislature. It was hitting the governor's desk. And then Walmart all of a sudden piped up and said, excuse me, we would really prefer it if you didn't sign this, which, again, that is when, you know, the the beating red heart of red corporate America essentially saying we are for gay rights and we would appreciate it if you didn't uh, put a black mark on our state over this. That really got a lot of people's attention. And do, do you think that the CEOs had power as a group? Do you think they pushed it? Yeah. So there's this idea that kind of bubbled up that now there is this party of CEOs and it really just saying, you know, the fiscal conservatives, right? <laughs> These are the guys who care about business climates, but they really don't want the uh, religious, the cultural conservative agenda to interfere with business in their state or with the way their companies do business. And this is yeah, not credible to me. Really? For one thing, I don't think that Tim Cook and Mark Benioff are particularly fiscally conservative. And for another thing, I don't think that this law really changed in any way the way that Apple or Salesforce or even Walmart operated in Indiana. Like, they could just keep on operating the way they were. What they were objecting to was a bigger political thing. They weren't saying that their business was being harmed by this particular... No, no. I think that, uh, especially in Walmart's case, is, is an example of this, is that they just don't want to deal with this. They don't want to have to answer that they don't want to be in a position where they have to answer to customers and even take a position on it. They just want this off the table. They have to answer to a very diverse uh, customer base in states like California as well. And so if they are the most important name in business in Arkansas, they don't want to be facing boycotts over this or things or being held accountant some way. I think so. So wait, the idea is to just be clear here, I'm still I'm still a little bit confused that if Arkansas passed a law, then people would blame Walmart for that. Yeah. And 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 if Indiana passed a law, then people would blame NASCAR for that. Well, it's absolutely true that the Final Four, you know, the basketball tournament, they said, we're not going to do business in Indiana. 
So there's business being lost from the state in general, which means any large company like Walmart who does business in the state is going to suffer from that. There is some of that. I think it's also just what you're asking is why do CEOs care? I just don't believe that there's some kind of obvious financial incentive for them to care. It seems to me that there was this sort of wave of CEOs saying, this is the right thing to do, and we are going to do the right thing. That, you know, an employee in Indiana sent Mark Benioff of Salesforce an email saying, I just don't like the atmosphere in Indiana right now and the kind of homophobia that I have to deal with. And as a gay man, can you help me relocate? And Mark Benioff said, yes, of course, here's $50,000, go move anywhere else in So you really think it was like a moral thing? Yes. I think there is some more. Tim Cook, it's clearly a moral thing. Like, yes. Stop there, because Tim Cook didn't come out until he knew that his company wasn't going to lose that much money by his his coming out. All I'm saying is we're in a space as a culture now where CEOs can be moral about this because it's not going to ruin their business. I also do think that for a company like Walmart, there is a degree to which they have to worry about, can they attract smart people to come work in Arkansas, in in corporate headquarters, essentially? Can they attract young, smart talent? The more awful Arkansas seems, the harder it is for them to attract their future executives. Okay, so that maybe explains Walmart in Arkansas. I think this is an incredibly positive, well, okay, it's half a positive development. I think it's great that corporate America is taking its sort of citizenship responsibilities seriously and saying, hey, look, we can make a difference. And they did make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, our, and Indiana did repeal the law. Or, it altered it. Yeah, but yeah. It. And I think it's also probably a bit random. You know, it's like that little speck of dirt in the oyster, which ultimately becomes a, a pearl. pearl. Like, you know, it, you don't really know. You could never have predicted that it would have been this random Indiana law, which started this ball rolling. But once it did, then it's good to see this ball getting rolling. But the question I have for Kathy is this quote from Mark Benioff when he was saying there is this third political force in the country, which is CEOs. And I think he's right about that. And I want to know whether you think, Kathy, that that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing, as you might not be and surprised do you think here. he's correct? I'm a little bit more cynical than you about this, Felix. I actually think that you can think to some extent of these CEOs as making a calculated decision based on their customers. And those customers, obviously, are people that they're paying customers. So to the extent that these CEOs are doing exactly what their paying customers are asking them to do, and to the extent that they have political power, which they obviously do, then we have kind of like this third party, which consists of people with money. I just get the feeling that this particular instance was led by the CEOs, and it wasn't a reaction to some kind of grassroots thing. There wasn't a huge number of Americans phoning up companies and CEOs and saying, please, can you complain to Indiana? This well, came from the top. Not no, the it did. It did. But on the other hand, you said this is like a good sign. And I would say, actually, the good stuff happened already. The good stuff happened when, as a country, we said, yes, we think gays should get married. And this is just a result of that. This is just literally an effect of the thing that's already happened, which is good. So we are not really disagreeing. I'm just saying that I don't think the CEOs taking a stand here was them making a huge surprising moral decision that went against anything. I went, they went for something. And the for something, that's a good thing. Well, no, the, what they went against was Mike Pence and Indiana. And they went hard, hard against him and got effects, got results. Yeah. I just, again, I think it comes down to the fact that most wealthy CEO types, whether they are you know, liberal or mildly conservative or very conservative on you know, financial issues, which is like this issue gone. 
I think that really, and to in their perspective, you know, either because they really support gay marriage wholeheartedly, or because they just don't want to have the you know Republican Party focused on it anymore, and it's sucking the Republican Party into these culture war fights. Let's look at what happens with the CEO party when some crazy governor of some cra- you know does something that is really bad for poor people, not for paying customers, and see whether CEOs stand up and say that's wrong, change that, and fix that. Like my guess is that that won't happen so much. I think that it's you know it's it's a it's a fact that you know we're talking about paying customers care about gay rights. I I don't think this is about keeping paying customers, but we will agree to disagree on that one. Okay, and we will move on to a similar question of idealism versus pragmatism, which is a fascinating campaign which is being run by the Guardian right now, which has focused on the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust, which are two multi-billion dollar philanthropies, both of which have extensive multi-billion dollar investments in fossil fuel companies. And what The Guardian is saying is that, like all philanthropies, they keep 95% of their assets invested. They don't spend all of their money every year. It's mostly invested, and then you just take 5% out. We've talked about this in an earlier edition of the podcast. So where you invest your money is important. And if you're dedicated to making the world a better place, which these philanthropies are, then you would want that 95% of your status to work towards that. And if you're investing in fossil fuel companies, then there's a very obvious case to be made that you're not making the world a better place. You're helping to destroy the planet. And so what The Guardian is doing is they're saying, please, Gates Foundation and Wellcome Trust, divest from these 200 companies, which have nearly all of the fossil fuel reserves in the world. Do you think this is a sensible thing for them to do? And do you think that these philanthropies should do that, Jordan? This raises a question for me. I mean, if you're a philanthropy and you divest, and theoretically the stock goes down, and suddenly it's undervalued, doesn't that just create an opportunity for somebody else to buy it who really doesn't care about any of these issues? And Well, okay, are you saying then that the purpose of divestment is to drive the stock down and there's well, no point say, in doing it if it doesn't drive the stock down? I mean, like, as a moral statement that we're not going to invest in this at all, yeah, I mean, it sends a message, I suppose. But is there any tangible financial effect? So this, this is questions. what I call the what difference does it make argument. Yeah. Philanthropies love to look at the world in terms of how they can change it. And they look at the world in terms of how they spend their money and how can we change the world. And they look at the world through that lens when they invest their money as well. And the fact is, realistically, divesting from fossil fuel companies is not going to change the world. It's not going to change the profits. It's not going to change the amount of fossil fuels in the world. It's not going to really change anything. And so their general reaction is, wouldn't it be more effective if we remained shareholders and engaged with these companies and said, please, can you behave in a more environmentally responsible manner rather than just simply washing our hands of it and saying, we divest ourselves of you? You see versions of that in uh, the labor movement in the U.S. You actually see unions trying to actually buy stock in some of these companies that pay workers very little in order to try influence some aspect of what's going on on the board. So, which to me intuitively makes a little more sense. I, I was thinking about this very question, like what good does it do? After all, Felix's favorite point about IPOs and stock buying is that you're not really affecting the company just by buying its stock. When they have the IPO, they get the money. After that, we're just trading stocks amongst ourselves. But I was thinking about like other sort of categories besides fossil fuels that people do actually avoid investing in. So the sin categories and whether they as industries have been affected by this kind of sin um, categorization. And, th- and those sins are typically gambling stocks, the guns and tobacco. 
And, and, my, and interestingly, both the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation refuse to invest in tobacco stocks. Okay. So the question, I guess, comparison. Like, if we think best case scenario, quite a few people stopped um, investing in fossil fuels, what will it look like? And we can look at, well, what's happened with tobacco? And I feel like we don't, well, we can't really, because the point is that tobacco has been decimated, but it wasn't because of divesting, right? This is, this is exactly right. I think if what you're doing is taking this sort of functionalist approach to the campaign and say, well, what difference is it going to make? And if it doesn't make any difference, then there's no point in doing it. Then you will very, very easily wind up at this place of, well, there's no point in doing it. Right. Okay. So then let's go to the second possibility, which is like, do do it, do invest, become a shareholder, and then try to have effect. But then what is the kind of effect you can have with oil companies when their only goal is to sell oil and you're trying not to let them sell oil? Like that would be your advice to stop selling oil. Like what kind of effect could that be? Right. Exactly. I think it's incredibly easy to overstate the effect that someone like the Wellcome Trust can have on ExxonMobil. You know, even if they are a large shareholder, they're not going to change the way that ExxonMobil behaves. So that's not going to make much of a difference either. I think what I would say to all of this is that sometimes you don't do things because they will have a positive effect on the world. Sometimes you just do things because they are the right thing to do. And being invested in companies which are contributing in a meaningful way to destroying the future of life on this planet is not the right thing to do. Divesting from those companies, I think on a very obvious and intuitive level, is kind of the right thing to do. And so you do it just because it's the right thing to do and not because it's going to make a difference. Are we really taking the position on the show that using and drilling for oil is entirely immoral at this point? Or is there a finer... No, no, we're not talking about using and drilling for oil. And certainly, like, no one is saying that we should stop using plastics or... I'm not sure I get the distinction. Saying that it's wrong to invest in these companies, but it's not wrong to use their products, or it's... I mean, like... Correct. Yeah. Okay, so it's not wrong to use their products, but it's wrong to invest in them because... Is that because investing is just a, a longer term commitment or is there some other there is no need to invest in these companies you do need to drive your car to work otherwise you don't make a living you do need to use all of the plastics there's a lot of need for you know fossil fuels in the world no one is saying we should stop using them altogether that's a question of necessity there is no necessity involved in putting your hard-earned cash and spending it on ExxonMobil stock. No one is putting okay, a gun so, to your head and forcing you well, to do that. I think I'm going to try to explain your confusion, Jordan, because well, I, I have that same confusion yeah. when I thought about it preparing for the show. And my conclusion was there is no market solution to this problem. Yeah, Like we are trained to think Let's see what the market can do to solve this problem. I don't think this is a, just like the tobacco companies, it was regulation that helped. And in this case as well, we're not going to talk oil companies into stopping pumping too much oil. We're going to have to regulate that. We're going to have yeah. to make an agreement. I mean, that's what it kind of feels like to me. I mean, maybe maybe the fewer people who invest long term, the fewer people who invest in these stocks, the less likely there's going to be pushback against regulations. But again, from a moral perspective, if you're just sending the message that I don't want to be in any way involved in the end, you're still implicated. You're still driving their profits by using these resources. Well, I, just, I see the gesture. To me, it's an incredibly minor gesture. Okay. And I think you're wrong because there's some things that you need to do, but where you have choice, you express your choices in a moral way because you have ideals. And you can say, well, I'm going to poo-poo your ideals because they don't have any effect on the world. And I'm saying you don't judge ideals by the effect that they have on the world. And on top of that, what you were saying, Rick, Kathy, about regulation is incredibly important because the thing which will hurt 
carbon companies' profits is if we do manage to introduce a global cap-and-trade system or carbon tax or something like that, which will actually bring you know, carbon emissions down to a point at which global temperatures don't rise more than about two degrees. And the way that we persuade the governments of the world to take cap-and-trade regimes seriously, one of the ways to do that is to show that we believe in this on a moral level and on, 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 on an idealistic level. Jordan's, you know, incredibly pragmatic view of the world notwithstanding. I totally I, agree. The, this is a symbolic gesture when only one person does it. It's a movement when enough people do it. And, and that's we're not ex- saying it will reduce profits. We're not saying that yeah, we're going to stop monetary. using fossil fuels. We're not saying that we're perfect. We're just saying that where we have a choice, we exercise our choice. And by the way, I want to throw in Given that, how frustrating it is that individuals have a lot of difficulty doing this. Oh, it's impossible. Don't even think about trying to do it on an individual level. I apologize to everyone in this country that our finance system has ways for you to invest your 401ks and IRAs, but almost no way for you to do it without fossil fuels. It's embarrassing. It it is basically impossible. And if you do it, you're doing crazy, crazy harmful things to your personal finances. And I seriously would not recommend it. You know, I guess part of when I think about the idea of what would happen if we all magically divested. You know, I think about Coke Industries and, and the fact that essentially they're freed up to act at the whims of, you know, a few private owners. Like, what would happen in an imaginary world where these companies just went private? They became private because no one wanted to invest in them. They bought up their cheap stock. And, you know, if it, no one wanted to invest in them, then we would have political momentum to make Yeah, at that point. Exactly. At that point. That's but, co- but that's the point. Right. Uh, yeah, and, and I think your your general sort of pragmatic pessimism is bringing me down. Aren't you meant to be a millennial, Jordan? Aren't you meant to be an idealist? Honestly, who, speak for your we're, generation. We're, we're the people who voted for Obama and then watched the last eight years unfold. I don't know where we get this idealistic. Uh, anyway, we've kind of given up on that. I think I you're think. representing, actually. Yeah, All right. pretty much. So, Kathy, yeah. you and I olds are going to have to represent the idealist. Hey, I'm an activist. Table. You know I'm hopeful. Okay, um, let's have some numbers, people. 1,000. 1,000, Kathy. That's how many pages in this most recent report by the Monitor, the Department of Justice, placed in HSBC to see how Oh, that's hilarious. I love that. This is a guy who's clearly being paid by the hour. (laughs) You mean that's why it's 1,000 pages? Yeah, I mean, there's this lawyer who goes into HSBC and writes a 1,000-page report. The only reason to write a 1,000-page report is because you're being paid by the page. You know, I wanted to read it. Honestly, I was like, I'm going to take a look. I found like the first six pages on the New York Times, and then there was like a PDF link to the whole thing. And I was like, this might break my computer. I'm not going to do this. Uh, A thousand page PDF sounds like a mess. But anyway, the monitor found basically that, you know, HSBC isn't totally failing in their five year attempt to clean their act up after their huge fine for like basically money laundering for Mexican drug cartels. But that senior HSBC officials are like, screaming at people and pushing back and generally being inappropriately nasty when it comes to internal audits and forcing those audits to be more positive than they should be. And so it's it's a mess. And it's, it's nice to see. Maybe. I, I think there are much more effective ways of regulating banks and sending in lawyers to write thousand-page reports. But... Like maybe putting some in jail. Or just having tougher regulators. Um, Jordan, what's your number? My number is $1.50, um, which is how much Tesla's stock jumped in the minute 
after the company sent out an April Fool's press release saying that they were debuting a watch. Apparently, <laughs> the wow. volume surged on that news briefly, and the stock jumped, and then all of a sudden people were always told... Well, the stock is like hundreds of dollars, right? Yeah, but still, point is, on that news of the, I think it was like the Tesla W, it was pretty clear they were just making fun of Apple. The market you know, had a last-minute reaction. I have seen worse reasons for any stock to move. I can pretty much guarantee that Tesla stock moves a buck and a half within a few minutes many times per week for any or no reason. This is just another any or no reason as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't know. This is the last 10... It was like the last 10 minutes of the trading day. It went up and then went down really rapidly once people actually had time to read the press release, I think. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> yeah, a, first, there's an announcement. You buy the stock, you read the announcement, you sell the stock. This is, this is efficient market. <laughs> My number is... so. We record this show on Fridays, and the first Friday of every month is the jobs report, and we've done a pretty good job, in general, of not feeling that we need to talk about the jobs report every time that I'm it proud. comes out. Yeah. But this month, I think I'm going to talk about the jobs report, because my number is 627 which, Jordan, you know what I'm talking about. You're here. talking about the labor force participation I'm rate. I'm talking about the labor force participation rate, which is basically the number of people in this country who are either working or looking for work. This is the lowest that it has been since February 1978. Wow. Before, before most girls women yeah. started entering <laughs> the labor force. It fell to 62.7%, from 62.8%. It has never been lower, effectively. So 62.7%, you're saying? Of are, the country. So that means like the rest, which is like 37% of people, are unemployed, not looking for work. Or out of the labor force. Yeah. They're retired, or okay. they're in jail, or something like that. I would say the, the one qualifier on this otherwise depressing number is that the labor force participation rate has sort of been bobbing up and down for a while. It's sort of in a holding pattern between 62.7 and 62.9. The sad part is we would really like it to go up. I think I've mentioned this before on the show, is we would like a lot of those people who have left the labor force to come back. Which did happen during like 99, 2000, when we had that Clinton economic boom. The labor force was increasing. And you know what we want, we've seen that people who have work are actually doing okay for themselves, kind of, sort of. We've, we've seen those headlines from Walmart and Target and now McDonald's. Of, you know, lower paid people are earning more. Higher paid people have been earning more for quite a while now. But what's not happening is the economy really sort of growing fast enough to attract the discouraged back into the labor force. Yeah. I would add, actually, there there was even more bad news in that jobs report, um, just in terms of the sheer number of jobs created. So it was an extremely low number. It was about 100,000 less than uh, expectations. There's a sense that the economy might actually be cooling off. We'll probably be talking about this in the future, is my guess. But you've seen the number of jobs created each month actually sort of on a downward trend since about November. And uh, at the same time, GDP may be basically zero for the quarter. At least that's what the Atlanta Fed thinks. So lots of reasons to be pessimistic. We were hoping that 2015 might be the year you know, the capital ran out of steam and labor started taking over. But with the last three jobs reports now, that's maybe not. Let me just throw in w one incredibly nerdy thing that might make this a little bit less bad. Yes. Can we end on a small little ray of sunshine? <laughs> Which here, is Gabby? that the demographics of the situation, we have more retired people. There's a bump of retired people from the baby boomers. Yeah, well, that, that is that's part of priced it. in oh, the, as well. 
<laughs> Shit. Retirements are part of it, but they're not all of it. Yeah. Okay. I did my best, people. I, I could draw everyone a very nice graph. The on one it. thing that, that we really need on this podcast is, is, a graph. is Jordan's whiteboard, because he keeps on saying, let me draw you a picture. I, I, I'm like, you can't do that on I'm the radio. I'm so much better with pictures than words, guys. So much. Well, anyway. I invite anyone who listens to Slate Plus to come into the Slate offices and ask Jordan to draw them a picture. He will do that for you. So many pictures. So many (laughs) pictures. Um, I thank you all for listening and I urge you all to subscribe to the show. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Do leave us a review. Do write to us slatemoney at slate.com Do send special thanks to Stan Alcorn, the producer this week who managed to put up with our ramblings and to Joel Meyer, the managing producer, and to Andy Bowers, the executive producer. We are, of course, part of the Panoply Network, so check out the entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And as Alex Bloomberg said last week, if you want to sell ads on those podcasts, because they are amazing podcasts and you're an amazing salesperson, then just send your resume or whatever it is you think will get you hired to hiring at panoply.fm. Thank you. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.